So, as many of you likely know, there was an election here in Ontario yesterday. And as regular listeners might be aware, we're at a bit of a disadvantage in covering it as we record the show a couple days early. And therefore, we have no idea what happened. But in case it's gone in a direction that arouses despair, we planned a special full-length interview on climate anxiety and how to work through it, which we'll dive into now. Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which we found anywhere podcasts can be found, also at greenmajority.ca, which is our website. I am Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with a special full-hour interview with Dr. Simon Apolloni, Assistant Professor of the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto, to talk about one of our, I would say, longest-running conversations we've had in the last six months, which is climate anxiety. And I'm super excited to dive deep with you on this topic. Thanks so much for being here, uh, Simon. Thank you, Stefan. I'm excited, too. For people who listened to the show a couple of weeks ago might have heard a actually rerun of an interview that uh, David had uh, with Stephen Sharper, or Professor Stephen Sharper, uh, who's a colleague of yours. But this conversation came out of a an email out that you had been interviewed uh, by the CBC to talk about climate anxiety. And that's something that we have been trying to dive deep in on this show, in part because by the end of last August, we sort of found ourselves in a moment where at least I personally was really down sort of about climate change. I, I was having a real, it was not a great time for those people who are working on climate change. You know, the heat dome had just occurred. There was a series of other bad things happening across Canada. And it was just a really dark time to feel like we were going to get through this. And since then, I've been asking people again and again and again, how they deal with climate anxiety. And so I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and lending your expertise on this issue. But to sort of ground ourselves, Maybe you can tell us about your academic background and how you approach this work and the considerations that we'll be talking about today. Well, I, I, I come from a humanities background, studying uh, first studying religions and their response to the environmental crisis of our time. And, and, and I've, since the last 10 years, I've moved more toward worldviews and, and our relationship with the earth. And that's allowed me uh, to do a lot of um, um, creative thinking with with students on on why are we here, what are we doing, and and where might we be going? But over the last ten years, um, for sure, I've noticed a discernible difference in the students, and and what you've just mentioned, uh, a noticeable anxiety over over their future. Now, my my approach to, to my research um, and my teaching really is uh, through a liberationist uh, lens. And by that, it's, it's to understand liberationist approach or methodology, think of it like social justice, both liberationist and social justice call for the building of housing for, for, for poor people. The liberationist principle would demand though, that the people who are going to live in that house be part of, of the building, the design uh, of their own house. And, and this agency, if you wish, is, is, is absolutely important. And you'll, you're seeing today that um, 
many of the youth who are going to suffer a life ahead of them in, in, in uh, the effects of uh, inaction on climate change. Um, it's not surprising when they feel that they're disempowered. This liberationist theory, what's the history of it? Sort of, you know, what's the tradition it comes out of? Well, it comes from actually Latin America at first uh, in, in the global south. Uh, and, and this was when uh, uh, thinkers uh, like Gustavo de Gutierrez, Leonardo Boff, they, um, the, both theologians were looking at the absolute poverty uh, amongst the, the, uh, the people in, 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 in South America and Latin America. And they were asking the questions, why? And, and, at, and they came to the conclusion very, I mean, for uh, brevity, that they are poor because we are rich. And it's that certain developmentalist approach forced upon by the, the, the Western nations, industrialized nations that, yeah, you, you serve us and, and, and too bad about you, um, that led them to think that is not why we are here. And, and, and they, of course, they were looking through a Christian perspective and they, they reread the same gospel passages, the same uh, Testament passages that have been read all along, but through this certain lens and they realized, no, no, this is not the way it's meant to be. And so that it turned into liberation theology, but then it, it morphed into liberation uh, um, philosophy. And I take it from that sort of ethos uh, um, uh, and with liberation. Everyone, every creature has its own design and it should be part of that. It should be part of its own design and not nothing forced upon it. You can totally see how that connects into, you know, young people's climate anxiety or, or how you can approach, you know, young people's interaction with climate change, given the speed of which work is necessary and the fact that those in power who could do the most are not, you know, at least currently are not coming to young people and asking them to sort of take charge, you know, oh. not seeing that pretty commonly here. Exactly. There's a, uh, you, you might have be aware of this. It was a very large uh, study done last year by out of the University of Bath um, in concert with other universities. And they, they interviewed 10,000 youth from the age of 16 to 25 in 10 different countries. And not only in the global north, some in the global south, including India is one of them, I believe. And they found overwhelmingly 75% were frightened about the future. And, and something else they found is they felt, um, they felt that they were, um, um, they got the short end of the stick by governments. Governments are not listening to them and they're not taking their own concerns and their thoughts and aspirations of future into account. And, and that made me think, this is absolutely uh, right thinking on their part. Why shouldn't they be part of the design of their own future? And, and why should corporations be telling them, no, no, you be quiet. We'll tell you how your future will unfold. And so before we get you know, too far down this road, I do want to ensure that we you know, define our terms as I feel like any, any good academic would. Uh, can you describe what you mean when we talk about climate anxiety? and how it you know, shows up in the world today. <laughs> I, I wish I could give you a definitive answer. Uh, I've been searching uh, for a while and, and no one seems to have one answer. And that's probably okay at this point um, because it's new and it's quite broad. 
Um, you've called it climate anxiety. I use that word. Uh, sometimes I use echo anxiety. Uh, there's climate distress, climate grief, ecological grief, uh, solastalgia, which is sort of a mixing nostalgia with loss of a place that was dear to you. So there are quite a few terms. However, I'm I use a sort of a broad umbrella term as sort of an operative understanding of um, of climate anxiety as an emotion of fear, emotions rather, fear, worry, stress, grief, anger, powerlessness, and perhaps even guilt, all related to perhaps current, but generally future uncertainty um, and this uh, uncertainty about a threat to the environment including what that threat might mean for society, for the natural world around them, and for their own future. I think that definition would jive with all of the other people I've talked to about this. I think that sort of you know fear of the future. Although I think yes. what's interesting is that what plagues us now a little bit is also how triggered that is by climate disasters now. You know, every time we have, every time I feel like we live through another climate disaster that may not be affecting us right now, we feel that fear, you know, because it's almost like, you know, it's getting closer. You know, it's almost like we're being stalked by this climate destruction that's coming towards us in some way. And so your writings, you know, have touched on the need uh, to work through climate anxiety, you know, and, and youth, was are with youth. The, one of the articles I'm pulling from here is an article that you wrote uh, for The Conversation, which is a great publication, by the way, uh, about how uh, you can help young people learn about climate change. And so I'm going to reference it a couple of times because it, I, I, this is part of the work here. You know, if, if you if y'all are listening to this show, one of the hopes I can deliver through this conversation is to give you some steps to maybe work through yourself or through young people. Because I think that question of, you know, we, we've seen even people talking about like, should I have kids because of climate change, which is a conversation that's ongoing. But the secondary conversation is I already have children. How do I tell them about this? You know, like, I feel like I was the last probably generation to not learn about climate change really in high school. And so I made it to university before really getting a sense of just how bad it was. Okay. And and that led me on a different sort of pathway than I think, you know, learning it at 10 or 11 and having to go through that all, you know, uh, that hard time of your life while also having this sort of bleak future is, I think, especially difficult. And so I think this is really timely. And one of the things that you say or talk about is the need to reject uh, the climate denying optimism that you, on the internet is thrown out, people call it hopium. Um, but I'd be interested to know how you would differentiate, you know, the ability, how to talk to someone where they aren't, where they feel like work can still happen and progress can still be made without it sort of veering too far into the, don't worry about it. We definitely got this kind of optimism that is so counterproductive, I think, to the work that we need to see happening. Yes. Good, good point. Um, that, a naive wish that things will turn out well, or as you say, some addiction to false hope um, is, is, is counterproductive. It's, and it's also unscientific. 
Fortunately, where I teach, um, we are base our findings, our, our understandings, our conclusions are premised on empirical evidence. And we, uh, the, the latest from the IPCC uh, in, in, in very extreme unison are saying, uh, is, is saying that we are indeed uh, suffering from uh, troubles, anthropogenic in nature, that it will lead to um, the greater frequency, severity, duration of extreme weathers. And they also say there exists also many means to counter this for, uh, for mitigation, for adaptation. And so it's really a matter of presenting the truth uh, as science shows them. Um, not any naive hoping. Um, so that makes it somewhat easier. I say somewhat because <laughs> it, you have to get them from point A, recognizing the grim realities to letting them know, um, no, that's not the end of the story. On that, actually, I think that's a good segue to this next question, which is, my experience has been with a lot of people, even older than children, who are going through a sort of similar learning journey. You know, they but and but in their twenties or even thirties, you know, because mm. it really is. It, climate change can sneak up on you. You you know, you can read one article and you're like, oh, I should learn more about this, and then you read a second article and a third and a fourth, and you know, if you read what is said, it's terrifying. And, and so the, I want to get into in a second, sort of how you sort of work through it with children or how you suggest you work through it with, with young people. But I'm curious if you have any ideas of whether you would have a different strategy with someone older, or if these sort of ideas were the same, or yeah, how you might work with someone who may be experiencing this sort of cycle of climate uh, anxiety at a later stage in life? That's uh, an interesting um, point to make. I, I, I'm focusing on uh, those, the, the youth in, in post-secondary education specifically, uh, but, uh, and, and that gives it a certain demographic, um, and I don't hide any tr any truths to them. I don't water th uh, any anything down. But you're right. Uh, I if I were teaching young children, uh, those uh, uh, you know before they're in, they're in their tweens or even earlier, and they are suffering from echo anxiety. Studies have shown that they they are scared. They, um, you cannot tell them, well, the, the, the corporate industrialized uh, uh, system is causing undue damage to the entire earth and that we are, and you spelt, no, that's going to destroy them. Not to mention they won't, they have to still understand about economic political systems before they can even get that far. And so you can have a mother or father say, yes, it's true. The polar bears are, are in trouble, but no, Jimmy, that things, uh, there are a lot of people working right now to, to change things. I guess I'm not an expert in, in child education. Um, but I do know that I noticed that the, there are differences on why one enters into anxiety. 
at some level between those who are older and those who are younger. So for example, the, 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 uh, the students I, uh, I teach, the students at university are likely uh, to uh, find some anger because of the intergenerational injustice that's going on. They didn't create this and yet they have to live it. And what's more, as we discussed earlier, they're the ones who are being you know, shoved aside when it comes to making uh, decisions about the future. So uh, I can see that and also their uh, grief at the loss of their dreams. My gosh, I wanted to do this or that and I can't see myself doing that in the future. Not if I wanna be a just person living a, a sustainable life. So, so that they're entering the grief, uh, anxiety from for one reason, um, overall, I'm saying. Whereas the old, and you've seen this, the, the older generation, such as um, Howard Breen, I don't know if you've heard of him in out in BC a couple of months ago, he, uh, he went, uh, he finished a 27 day fast, was it? Uh, to the point of, as you know, for that long, you can do very irreparable damage to your own body. But he, he said it was because of my children and my grandchildren. I did. I felt powerless, powerless in in the face of what's going to happen to them, and so he took on a hunger strike for the sake of those who are coming after. I would say both deserve the same truths, uh, but generally they 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 their their concerns and 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 fears stem from probably different concerns. I remember seven or eight years ago, watching a play that was sort of based off of this question that went back and forth between, should we have a child? And these this couple ends up conceiving. And then the, it's kind of a dark play because it ends with the child kind of hating them because the the because it keep, keeps going forward and forward in time. And as things get worse and worse and worse, you know, the, the, the child can't get past this anger that, that they have oh at, at the generation before. And I mean, I, I, that, that anger is, again, I think it's interesting to be, I'm 33. It's interesting to be my age because I feel I'm in the middle between these two. I, 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 I feel like in the 2010 to 2020 was a time when we went from very much being like, we could probably deal, deal with about this, you know, it's happening to we're really not going to. And so you sort of sit in this middle ground where many of the older environmentalists I speak to do so in part because they sort of see their generation as the one who have done this to the world. And the young generation feels like this was already done to them beforehand. And so it's almost, you know, it's, it's a, for the young people that anger in, in sort of grief is, is what's so present. And the old, uh, the older generations, it feels so often a bit of like, trying to make up for their generation's deficiencies and right. trying to sort of right the wrongs that they feel so responsible for, even if they personally, you know, we're trying to live, you know, a life full time, but they still see themselves as part of this generational group that, as you said, has committed sort of generational violence, you know, against, against the young people. And so it makes sense that they would, that would lead to a slightly different way that this could show up, you know, because it is, you, you do feel a different personal responsibility for it, I guess. Yes, and and I feel for both. It, it's sad on both occasions. Both are suffering the sense of powerlessness. Uh, um, I, I grieve because I so my students say just just today in class, uh, someone asked me, "Should I 
should we not have children? And I said, I, my heart melts uh, when they say this because children could be the, the biggest blessing for some people. It's, it's, the, it's the greatest gift that they, for themselves, for the future, and to say that. And my, my response is that I cannot answer that for you, but I can also say that child you have could, could be the, the child that helps to invent, invent the technology that we just need at the right time. It could be the child that is, has uh, ability to foster a brilliant way of regenerative farming, et cetera, et cetera. But it also is a child, your child, that you can teach to have uh, love of, of all the earth, uh, to eat and, and walk softly uh, upon the planet. So. It's, it's, it's such a, um, it's such a, uh, I mean, these ontological questions come up uh, and, and I, that's what, what, why I'm concerned with echo anxiety. I, I, I you, you know, the um, uh, Princess Bride, the, 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 I'm sure you're aware of that, uh, it's a well-known movie. And there's uh, Miracle Max uh, played by Billy Crystal. And at the end, after he takes care of the protagonist, he yells, have fun storming the castle. And then his wife says, do you think they'll, 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 they'll have a chance? And he says, I, it'll take a miracle. And I, I love that, that screen. But sometimes I feel like that as, as someone teaching on every day, you know. Um, by the way, uh, the end of the world is on the final exam and uh, have fun storming the castle. And I said, no, I, it can't be that way, which is why I'm, I'm working on, on building sort of pedagogy of hope and resilience at the same time of teaching them the science behind that discussion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that makes sense. We're gonna go to a quick music break uh, and then we will come back and dive more deeply into your, your sort of six points of a step-by-step walkthrough and how you'd talk through climate anxiety, uh, you know, with youth that you sort of, you've mentioned already, um, or, you know, as, or someone else who's learning uh, about the depth. So in a, just a half second, we will be back uh, with Dr. Simon Apolli- Apolloni, Assistant Professor of the School for Environment at the University of Toronto. Be back after this short music break. Burning trees outside your door turn shocking flat in two dimensions. A friend who is a saint is crazy and yelling at cars on the street while the afterbirth of the computer world singes your lips. The wiry haze of hot phantoms lingers on the telephone wires, making messages for governments and citizens with numbers and Bibles, and physics. The psychedelic limelight of your mind twists through time in a century made of laughter stretched bitterly through code. This feverish feel sits its jelly in the air as strangers dance with electronics. Superman unveils a fresh philosophy 
muscle men flex in identical outfits. The lithium in your computer, the implants in your brain, the lithium in your computer, the implants in your brain seize your muscles and lead you to a temple. You just heard the band Yound, Y-O-U-N-D. And that was me, David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter, <laughs> talking on that song. And that was an interlude from an album we recently put out, self-titled Yound. Check us out on YouTube, Instagram, and all of those corporate streaming conglomerates that you may listen to music on. That's Yound the Band, Y-O-U-N-D, Yound the Band, from Toronto. And that was a song called 2020, The Man on the Internet Interlude. That was just a little interlude, the beginning of a song, not yet entirely recorded. And there it is, a band called Yound. And I will continue pushing this music until I run out of tracks. Okay, back to Stefan Hostetter and his interview with Dr. Simon Apolloni. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts can be found. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and for those of you who are joined us over the music break, I am here interviewing Dr. Simon Apolloni, Assistant Professor for the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto, and we're talking about climate anxiety. So to dive back in, this article you wrote for the conversation is all about, just before the break, you mentioned building a pedagogy of resilience and hope. And this article sort of dives into six ways you can begin to do that and sort of help work through or teach people about climate change without creating, I mean, I'm going to say as much eco or climate anxiety, because I imagine if you learn about this, some is probably guaranteed. Can you w- walk us through the steps? Sure. I, I, the, 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 the number six is there's not a magic number. It's actually, I think they said, look, why don't you just keep it down to six? Because this article can be only so long. There are actually more, but I'll, I'll be happy to explain it. And there is a, a slight order at the, at the beginning, and that is radical acceptance. You, you have to help the, the, uh, the, the students, in this case, um, ex, accept this, what the science is telling them, except the prognosis that, that the IPCC uh, suggests that if we continue down the certain path of status quo, this is going to happen, this is very likely to happen, etc. Because if you don't accept and you sort of move into that form of denial or numbness, you are using up your energy for that and not in order to process. Uh, so I mean, I begin class at University of Toronto, 500, and the first thing I ask them first is, "How do you feel?" <laughs> and they say, "This is this is one of Canada's premier universities, and we're asking how you feel." And yes, uh, I am asking you how you feel, um, and that continues on throughout. But um, the second part is to acknowledge 
this this the motion it's it's it and let them know that it's entirely appropriate um there's nothing pathological i mean you could have a severe anxiety that's true and you'll need this very much a, a professional help but for the most part it, it it's very appropriate and understandable um once they've used that energy to accept uh, um, and, and understand their emotions, then you can bring them through various uh, uh, ideas. And the, the first one is um, the thinking, I call it dialectically, the not thinking in black and white. Yes, the future is grim. Yes, likely, even if we were to start, stop carbon uh, uh, emissions today, we will still see sea level rise. However, that is not the end of the story. And you have to show them there's other stories. Look at all the things that we have done in the past. Um, when the industrial re re revolution began, which is part of the problem, we needed, to, we needed railway tracks. And in England, almost overnight, it's thousands of tracks were laid. Uh, and so infrastructure was created overnight. Um, in, in World War II, Canada uh, became uh, sure it went on to the, the the war effort with because the Britain did, but it it suddenly um, was galvanized and was able to become one of the greatest producers of of the war movement and and it was able to to centralize the control and it it really did that almost overnight. Um, it took away powers from corporations. It took power away from uh, the, the, the provinces in distribution of resources, and it was able to, to do the war, war effort pretty well, uh, not extremely well. And then look at how COVID, uh, we suddenly, you know, we didn't excel on it, but suddenly overnight, uh, we had policies, we had money for those who were impoverished and couldn't pay their bills. And we had pol policies saying, um, you must not do this and must do this. And for the most part, with a few exceptions, people did look, cared for the common good and they, they wore masks. So that's the, the sort of thinking that it's not the end of the story. You have to look at the others. But then there are various techniques and these are proven through uh, psychological processes and, 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 and research. Mindfulness, mindfulness of yourself, what you're feeling with non-judgment, uh, learning how to breathe, that could be for yourself very therapeutic. Introducing them to art. Art is an extreme uh, form of, of therapy for those who can express their emotions uh, through music, poetry, or with, with some sort of uh, pen or art brush. Um, the, the, act of journaling, which is, I do that in one of my courses, I actually tell students to go find a tree at the beginning of the course and journal with that tree uh, and be with that tree. Being out in, 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 in nature, uh, many studies show that the, the actual presence in nature, it has a very calming effects. So these are all things you can do and, and I try to integrate them. Uh, but there are other things like gratitude. Gratitude uh, helps overcome negative thoughts. It, it also, um, um, grateful people be, tend to be more resilient. Um, and um, it could be a, a, an assignment that you are writing a letter 
to uh, the minister of the environment. So you're expressing yourself. And the, and the last thing I say is get out and do, do, do something because that is what's going to really empower you and do it not by yourself, go out with others. Uh, you had uh, Stuart Basden, the co-founder of Extinction, Extinction Rebellion and go out with them. Uh, don't be alone. Be with uh, others. And, and these are all ways that you can um, in, encourage some sort of mental uh, health resilience. Um, and then, of course, I also redefine hope, which is um, another thing that you have to do. Yeah. And so let's, let's dive into that one. I, I have a couple of questions about the, some of the previous ones, partially because I've seen a really interesting shift in climate presentation recently, looking at art and how trying to engage people in creating art, you know, push comments. Because I think honestly, and if folks disagree with this, I would love to be sent more examples. But one place I think the climate is oddly lacking is, especially in the activist movement, sort of that connection to art. We don't see it as much, you know, so many other movements are so intertwined and connected to different artistic styles and, and things. And the climate movement has, you know, not to say there aren't amazing climate things out there that are, that are, that are artistic and, and, and valuable, but I don't think it hasn't really defined itself as a movement through art, I think, in the way that so many others have. But I want to, before I get to that, this redefining hope, because even that sentence alone, I think those words redefining hope alone sort of draw me in and I want to learn more. And so, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I take, and I, I put it right on my syllabus too, uh, um, the phrase um, uh, Vaclav Havel's, uh, the uh, ex-Czech uh, um, president uh, and, and poet and dissident. He said that ho uh, hope is not... Um, not this uh, naive wish that things will turn out well, or even the conviction that things will turn out well, but uh, hope instead is a sort of a frame of mind and heart that what you are doing is the right thing. And I, I've always gravitated to that because it, it puts action into the word hope. It, some have used the word dark hope uh, because it, you have to understand that no skies are open and, and no deity is going to change things. But this one says, no, this is, this is uh, and actually uh, Joanna Macy, you might have heard of, uh, an activist herself and Buddhist scholar, she, she talks about active hope. Um, and it, it brings agency in there. So it, you, when you know you're doing something and you know it's right, for example, the work you're doing right now. I, I would say you working on the green majority, <laughs> you're doing the right thing. And that in itself should be reason to, to give you hope because it's when you stop doing things, that's when hope is, 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 is in, in uh, dire straits. Yeah, and I think that action and connecting it to action that's something that you hear time and time again. You know, when I ask this question to people, how they work on it, the things that keep coming back to so often are, I get out and I do something, or I join, I'm with community. You know, when I join community who are working on this, um, or some of the mindfulness stuff you mentioned. And, and, but I think what's interesting about the art piece is I think it also gives people a way 
to act without needing an organization. You know, there so often I think when you might be feeling a heightened sense of climate anxiety, there's probably not a protest happening that day. You know, like it's it's unlikely. You might get lucky, but you know, or 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 another action you might join or or a group or or you know all these things. Like, I think it's interesting to have these both personal solo things that still give you something action based to do as well as some more organizing power structure pushing type work that you might you know that is slower going but you have less control over but that you know i think both i think are very necessary but when it comes to managing it for yourself i i can totally see what the you know the value in these ones that are totally pushed by yourself and and personal and and definitely it's a, you're right when you say it's a both end you're you're, you're not going to be uh, uh lying on the ground in in front of some legislature uh, protesting uh the inaction on on the building of highway 413 good lord um for example um uh although that's the right thing to do <laughs> uh, um but you don't do that every day and you should, nor you should you necessarily uh, but at the same time, you can also walk through, should you have the chance, those same fields and, 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 and be with those creatures and their habitat and the trees that are currently um, in the green belt. Yeah, for sure. And so I didn't prep you for this question. So if it doesn't make sense, by all means, just let me know. But I'm interested in to go back to sort of your pedagogy, pedagogy that you sort of started with, or that that um, liberationist thinking. Hmm. How would you say that this liberationist thinking shows up in these suggestions? You know, how is it? How is it? How have you, how have you folded it into this work? Well, it's trying to make that individual understand that he, she, they can be the architects of their own future. And that despite the inaction and almost deafness of many policymakers, certainly many leaders in corporations, they still have some agency. And you can show them how they, individuals, well, look at Greta Thunberg, uh, who started by herself, uh, and moved into millions. Um, uh, how uh, Stuart Basden started in a small group and, and moved in, into uh, throughout uh, the planet. They how you can actually get people thinking. Um, and there are individuals who do it by themselves. Uh, it, it's not always in group. It just somehow tends to be easier when you're not alone. Yeah, for sure. I, personally, I'm the kind of person who needs another person to sort of get me out of the house. And so I, <laughs> I, I, I it resonates with me. Um, you, as a scholar, you are, I'm sure, constantly consuming new information and looking for new articles and, and papers and stuff like that. That's a part of your thing. One, and also, you, before we started recording the show, you mentioned that one of the courses that you teach is entirely looking at movies and their relationship to the environment. And so I feel like you're a perfect person to answer or to offer up any particular articles or books or works of art uh, that you find helpful sort of in this process of, of navigating climate anxiety or eco-anxiety? Well, thank you. I, I, I want to start with a book that I think needs, it's right at the top of the list, and it's called Active Hope. 
uh, uh, with subtitle How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. And it's written by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. He being, uh, the, Joanna Macy being an activist, Buddhist scholar, and, and Chris Johnston, uh, um, a psychologist. Wonderful view of, of, of this uh, display of this situation. They're, they're, the frames hope very uh, uh, pragmatically and gives you a lot of exercises that you can do. So I, I definitely that. There are books that uh, um, Sarah uh, Jaquette Ray, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, will show you how it's dealt with at the university level. I found a particularly good book by uh, Anushka Gross called A Guide to Echo Anxiety, How to Protect the Planet and Your Mental Health very helpful because uh, she provides strategies for yourself in, in overcoming the, uh, the problems. Um, and then some, there are books on hope, Blessed Unrest by Paul Hawken. Uh, he, he looks at the, how millions of, of, of small social movements, some large social movements have, have burgeoned in, in the last uh, decades because of, of, of what's uh, the problems that, that are facing us. Um, as far as art goes, I, I look at uh, I had, uh, music before I began my class. Um, and, and one of the songs, the Earth song, is a popular one by um, Michael Jackson, and he, it's it's full of all his woo woo, and and, and but it's it's quite a, a good song. And, and I show other songs that involve the environment. You, you know, Yellow Taxi. They turn they they destroy paradise and build a parking lot to show them that music is out there that that speaks to their 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 problems. And as for art, I show them, uh, and now I don't have one that I can think of right now, but I bring artwork into the lesson to show that, uh, how they can think dialectically. Hey, look, this is not the end uh, of uh, the, the grim reality is not the last word. Look at this piece of art. Um, I, I, it's, it's helpful because we're dealing with emotions and, and, some, and, and, and words, won't always help that. And, and so often, even I've had people talk to me about the ways in which, you know, art, like, like painted art or, you know, paintings like that can have such an impact on, on your mental health, even, but mostly when you're actually there physically with it. You know, there's something about it not being mitigated, you know, between oh, yes. the screen. There's something about be, seeing it and being in person with it. Yes. Uh, I, and, and for instance, in the most, one of my most recent class, uh, I, um, I had following a, a discussion we had with Angela Bischoff, who's with uh, Ontario um, Climate um, Action Alliance. They, I, I played the, the song Wolf Totem. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a Mongolian heavy metal band. The music is absolutely energizing and it's about empowerment and, and that they're going to defy the people who are going to invade their land and I thought I was just myself crazy because they were so uh, uh, fascinating and, and energizing but even Mur Murray Sinclair the judge uh, honorable judge and, and, and former uh, senator Murray Sinclair said uh, when he when when asked he says what do you do for your own resilience he says I listen to, to the song Wolf Totem because it totally gets you going thinking hey we have the power um, so let's pivot to 
a slightly more personal question as we sort of head towards the close. And it's the one question uh, that I've been asking everyone for the last six months, which is, although I've been saying six months, I realize now it's almost a year. Uh, but what does your own journey look like with climate anxiety? And is there anything that you in particular do? Um, my anxiety is, is more of a worry. I don't feel anxious as much as others I see experiencing it. And I think part of that has to do with two things I really love to do. And that is I go out with nature as every possible opportunity. Um, and I, I just listen and sometimes talk to trees. Uh, and, and I listen to the birds. I don't understand what they're saying, but I, I love their sound. And that in itself grounds me. And, and it almost it feel, makes me feel like a part of a larger community. They're my community. I'm part of their community. And, and that helps me when I have to to work overtime to do things. Cause I'm saying, well, it's not just for me, it's, it's for that tree uh, down the other block and, and, and that bird. The other thing um, is I, I, I'm fortunate to be talking about this and teaching it. And I therefore doing that, what I was talking earlier about the active hope or that hope that Valklav Havel says, when you know you're doing the right thing, it, it helps you feel that you're, you're not, that you are contributing to something positive. I, I'm doing research right now. I have two students helping me uh, research on echo anxiety and, and understanding uh, pedagogies of hope and resilience. And all these make, it make me feel like at least I'm, I'm doing what I believe is the right thing. So those two powerful aspects that, that, I, that are in the Six Ways article I did, uh, um, it makes it easier uh, for me. What I, Fenso, what I appreciate so much about your, your article and, and your writings and your you're talking about this is the range of options that you give people. You know, it's not just this is how to solve it. It's here is the sort of way to think through this and, and begin to take it on. Before I, I get to the, the last few questions, I do have, have one more follow up, which is I'm curious, you know, in your thinking through this or in your writing about this and in your uh, talking to people about this and things, is there something that you're drawn to now that you haven't sort of fleshed out or, or something that you feel like is really important that often can get overlooked? You know, is it something that you find you're often like, ah, we just missed that one part about this thing. You know, like I feel like so often in interviews or in, when you're trying to pull things in, you can get some stuff in there, but it's always maybe something that you can't just get in because it's, you know, it's, it doesn't, it, maybe it's complicated or maybe you aren't sure exactly how to phrase it or something. Thank you. That's, I, I appreciate that question. And there has been, and it's, it's my recent journey on all this has made me question um, and as, I mean, originally it was asked by theorist and environmentalist David Orr, what is education for, um, uh, you know, given all the disruption that has happened by people who are very, very educated, what is education for? I've changed that question to what are universities for? Um, and, and indeed, if, if, if we're going to impart some grim realities uh, to a, a new generation, we must also empower them, not just in, in, in the, the 
the analytical aspects. Yes, they must be able to think abstractly, analytically, and, 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 and at a high level of reasoning, but they must also, we must incorporate some ways of building resilience. So they, because it's not, the government is not gonna say, you know what, you're right. We, we've been doing it wrong. The corporations aren't gonna say, well, profit, schmoffit, I think the, the care, care of this is much more important. They're not. And so there's going to be a battle. Um, not, I'm not saying violent, but a certain battle of wits uh, uh, and, and, and worldviews that is, uh, and those who enjoying the status quo are not going to go down lightly. And we need to re, reconceive what we are imparting to these students uh, and, and let's not be Pollyannish about it. Um, we have to equip them uh, with, with ways of dealing with this new reality in our world. And maybe we're always doing this in some ways, but you're sort of educating today's youth for the lives that existed 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. You, you've designed education systems for yourself, but the world is different now. And you're always in a push pull of some places trying to catch up faster or slower. And it is somewhat amazing that that climate change, you know, doesn't seem to permeate the rest of education. You know, like we're talking about the world's survival, and yet you can still go through a whole, you know, four year degree and probably honestly a master's too and an PhD in, in, in other fields and never once grapple with the fact that the world that you're being prepared for doesn't exist or won't exist by the time you're done. Yes, yes, that is well put. And, and that's, that's what I think it ne needs to be understood uh, at the university level. Um, to, to, to coin a phrase uh, from Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This this is a whole new ball game, and and so we have to rethink our 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 education, uh, our processes, and and what we want to impart in this generation. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, for those who have listened to this interview uh, and would like to you know keep up with your work and and learn more or, or read some of your writing, how can they do that? Well, at the moment, I don't have a web page, I'm afraid to say. I, I do have my page on the uh, School of the Environment. So if you just look at the School of Environment, U of T, and uh, search my name, you will find my general interests, uh, my, uh, my contact information, and, and uh, my um, a smattering of, of my articles written and, and other publications. Um, and... I would like eventually to get to have something even greater. It's one of the things I'm, I'm working with uh, um, my research students, um, some landing page where um, students can go for e yet even more information uh, so that it's not just haphazard or um, they have to go searching. Amazing. Uh, well, folks, I'll be sure to, to link your page in the, in the show notes. So folks go to our website, they can get a link there, but I'm sure Googling your name would also probably get them just as far. So thank you so much. I do want to give, it's our tradition to give our uh, guests a, a last word to share sort of a last thought. And so I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to thank you for being here and then I'm going to throw to you and then you can just take as long as you like to sort of, you know, give 
speak directly to our listeners. As I mentioned, they are not only in the Toronto area, the CIUT broadcasts from Buffalo to Barrie and the ability and the, our wonderful partners uh, of community radio stations across the country bring in across Canada. And theoretically, a podcast can be listened to almost anywhere. Although I will admit as a Canadian environment podcast, we don't have a ton of Australian listeners to my knowledge. Uh, although if you are listening to Australia, please let me know. Um, so before I do that, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Simon Apolloni, Assistant Professor for School of the Environment at the University of Toronto. And yeah, any last thoughts to share with our listeners? Sure. Uh, those of you listening, those of you who feel anxious or some sort of grief, dread, any, any of the above uh, of the of your future related to climate, um, know that it's, it's okay. It's an entirely appropriate response. And know that you are not alone. We all suffer it in some form. And I encourage you um, to reach out to organizations that are concerned about the environment and to not be alone on this, learn more and help yourself build that resilience uh, because we'll need you too as part of, uh, of the movement to change things. And I, while it's, it's a darker hope, I have hope. And, um, I, and I, when it's underlined with the idea that hope stops, um, when we stop trying. So do it. <laughs>